So let me give you the big picture of what's going on in Ephesians chapter 3 to start with. So Paul starts off with opening up a prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, and then he was going to pray. But then he happened to say something that, that cast him into a long digression. What came out first in his prayer was, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he thought, oh, wait a minute, I need to explain more of what I was just saying in chapter 2. I need to explain more about what kind of apostle I am. I need to explain more of my doctrine that Jew and Gentile are now one new man in Christ because my prayer is going to be based on it, and I just realized there's some more I ought to put in. So he stops his prayer, fills in a whole lot more about what he was on, how we're one new man in Christ, and then he comes back to his prayer all the way down in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. So that's the overall structure of what's going on. Now, we're not going to get very far in that structure today. I thought I ought to lay it out to you. We want to interpret Scripture in its context, but, but we're going to do two things today, and here they are, two things and only two things in this whole sermon. The first one is we're going to pause and look at, we're going to take some time on and look at how the Apostle Paul introduces himself, because it's rich. There's a lot in it that we, need, that we can learn about how to live godly in Christ Jesus. There's a lot in it that we can learn about how to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So it's very important. I'm sure he chose his words very intentionally and very carefully. We're going to look at how he introduces himself, and that is when he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That'll be the first half of the sermon. What's he mean by that? Why did he say that? What are the implications for us? Second half of the sermon, closely related to it, we're going to look at Paul, Paul's stewardship and at the revelation he received in that stewardship, his unique stewardship he's going to talk about, that he was sent to the Gentiles, and then he's going to talk about how God gave him revelation. I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess that God gave him way more revelation than you've ever realized. Like you've kind of imagined Paul sitting there just writing Ephesians, and because God the Holy Spirit was inspiring it, was breathing it out, uh, it came out right, and that's true. But you need to understand that Paul received massive, massive doses of direct revelation from Jesus Christ. And in our day, when some people are combating Paul, but calling themselves evangelicals, we really need to understand, no, what Paul says is the word of the Lord. So those two things are what we're doing. I gave you the context. Here's what Paul's doing. Here's how far we're going to get today. We're going to look at that phrase, Paul, a prisoner. What's that mean? And what's it mean for us? Then we're going to look at Paul's stewardship and the revelation that he received in that stewardship and what that means for us and our Bible. Okay, you ready? You want to go with me, brother? All right, here we go. Thank you for that. Needed a little encouragement right up front. So let's look at Ephesians 3.1 again, and Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So I already told you, this is what we're looking at first. Paul introduces himself in this way. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is one of four prison epistles. And it's interesting that uh, four other times in various letters, Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, slightly different words sometimes, like Ephesians 4.1, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. He's in jail, but he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm in jail, but I'm a prisoner of the Lord. 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his 
prisoner. I'm in jail, but I'm his prisoner. So he's making a very important point here. He's choosing this language for a reason, maybe for a couple reasons that we'll look at. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm his prisoner. Paul, why are you putting it that way? Because I don't know if you remember this, Paul, but you're actually in Rome. You're a prisoner of Rome. You're actually a prisoner of the emperor. You're a prisoner of Nero. You're a prisoner of Nero and you're a prisoner of Rome. And how'd you get there? Because the Jews opposed you and ratted you out to Rome and got you in trouble with Rome and complained about you to Rome. And so the Jews caused you to be a prisoner to the Roman people who are led by uh, their emperor and you're a prisoner of those people. What do you mean you're a prisoner of Christ Jesus? And again, I wanna say, I think Paul has chosen his words very carefully. What is Paul saying when he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Well, I have a number of things I want to say about that, so I hope you'll stay with me. I think they'll help you to follow Jesus Christ. Maybe here's the first thing we ought to think about. Paul puts it that way because he is steeped in a biblical worldview in which we need to be steeped as followers of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean specifically. Paul was steeped in the Old Testament and in what it presents about God's sovereignty and God's providence and earthly powers. God's sovereignty over them, God's sovereignty in using them, God's sovereignty in moving them where he wants to be. Paul was steeped in this. Now, I'll tell you, I had about two pages worth of references that I was going to take you through right here, and then I realized I'll spend the entire sermon just reading the references. So I pared it down to just, well, three and a half, all right? So hang in there with me. Here's what I mean. Here's the kind of stuff that was in Paul's mind when he wrote, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Here's the kind of worldview he was moving in when he wrote, I'm a prisoner, not of Rome, not of Nero, not of the Jews, but I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Where do you get that, Paul? I get it from my worldview, which I've adopted from the Old Testament. Here's a few passages. Exodus. Egypt had a Pharaoh that enslaved the people of God. And God says to the Pharaoh, Exodus 9:16, I raised you up. Like the Pharaoh goes, no, you didn't. I raised me up. My armies, my everything, my cloning. No, 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 no. I, in my providence, I, in my sovereignty, I raised you up for this purpose. God had a purpose. That I might show my power in you. So we're piecing together some of Paul's biblical worldview from the Old Testament. It is God who raises up rulers. It is God who gives power to rulers. It is God who allowed Nero to be the ruler. It's God who gave Nero power over Paul. It's really God who has Paul in jail. It's really Jesus Christ who has Paul in jail. Or take Daniel. Let's go to the book of Daniel in our minds. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king. And he blessed the Most High, and here's what he said. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. He does his will. Everything happening down here, everything Nero did, God says, that's my will, and that's my will, and that's my will, and he's doing his will. And none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can stop him and nobody can question him because he's God. And when he says, I'm going to use this nation to do that. I'm going to move these people over to do there. I'm going to have these people put Paul in jail. No one can stop his hand from doing that. He's God. 
He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's all-wise. That's in Paul's head when he says, wait a minute, whose prisoner am I really? I'm Jesus Christ's prisoner. Jesus Christ has me here. I'm in the will of God. This comes up so many times. I picked a few more. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it, the king's heart, wherever he will. The king's totally unaware of God turning his heart. He thinks he turned his heart. But wherever his heart goes, it's actually God turning his heart there. God is so sovereign that he's over the king's heart. Some of the New Testament people knew this, and Paul probably knew about this. Pilate and the Gentiles team up, and they kill Jesus. And in a very important passage on this, Acts 4.28, the apostles pray with one heart that they, the Gentiles and Israel and, and, and the, um, the ruler, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, now listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what's the worst thing anybody has ever done on the planet? What's the worst thing? They killed Jesus, which also turns out to be the answer to this question. What's the best thing that ever happened on the planet? They killed Jesus. God is so great, he can take the worst thing and make it the very best thing. But the apostles say that when you killed Jesus, God was not up in heaven going, oh, no, 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 that's not the plan. What's going on? No. They were simply doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And in that passage, if we read more of it, they're quoting from Psalm 2, a deeply messianic psalm that includes words such as these. Why do the Gentiles rage? The kings gather together. Why do they imagine a vain thing? And then it says, the sitter in the heavens. That's the Hebrew way it reads. I love that. The sitter in the heavens laughs like all the Gentile kings are gathering together. Let's cast off the bonds of these people of God. Let's get rid of God's sovereign rule. And God sits in heaven and he laughs. And it says, he holds them in derision. There must be a lot of derision going on in heaven in these days. All over the world. None can stay his hand or ask, what is he doing? One more passage. Remember, I had two pages. You're getting it easy. Don't complain, all right? Book of Revelation, chapter 13, over and over and over, a number of times, it says of earthly powers and earthly authorities, it was given to them. Why were they able to do the thing they do? It was given to them. It was given to them. It was given to them. It was given. They can do nothing but what our sovereign God has given to them. So, Quick tour through just several of the many, many, many passages that Paul probably had memorized in Hebrew and knew them and could recite them from memory and had woven them into the fabric of his soul. And because of that, he winds up in jail and he doesn't say, well, Lord, how, what's going on here? Like, I'm your apostle. I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to preach the gospel. I'm tr- and you let this happen to me? What's going on here? No, 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 no. He lands in jail and he says, it is my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sovereignly moved his hand, moved Pilate, put me in the jail right here. I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. God's sovereignty and God's providence. You ought to know what those two are. What is God's sovereignty? That means he is king. 
He has all ruling power. He has all ruling authority. What is God's providence? That means he is working things in time according to his eternal plan from eternity past. One of the best verses on that in the whole Bible is just a few pages back, Ephesians 1.11, where it says, he is working now in time all things according to the counsel of his will. So point at a thing, something in your life, point at it. There it is. There's that thing in my life. I don't want it there. There's a hole in my life where I want something there, but it isn't there. He is working that according to the counsel of his will. It will help you greatly to understand that. It'll help you greatly. Maybe this is why, over in Philippians, another prison epistle, Paul gives us this. He says, and I don't have it all up there, but um, I'm just, actually, I don't have any of this up there. Just listen. He's in jail, and the Philippians send him a gift, and he says, thanks for the gift, and then he adds these words. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Well, why aren't you in need? You're in jail. Here's why I'm not in need. For I have learned, brothers and sisters in Christ, have you learned this? It will bless you. For I have learned, there are skills you have to develop to live the Christian life. Here are some. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Wow, what a great thing to learn. What an important thing to learn. Whatever comes my way, I can point out and say, this is from Jesus Christ. That helps me be content. This is from my divine Savior. This helps me be content. He gives us examples. He goes on and says, for example, what what have I learned? In what situations can I be content? Here, I'll tell you. I know how to be brought low. Like when I'm dirt poor. I I know how to do that. I have this skill set, so I can be dirt poor. It doesn't upset me. It doesn't worry me. I'm not mad at God. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just joyful in the Lord. And I know how to abound. It doesn't go to my head. I don't get all arrogant as if I'm special and it came from me because I know it's God and his providence and sovereignty who bless me with the things that are causing me to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. So Paul was Christ's prisoner sitting in prison saying, bless the Lord, oh my soul, wonder what he's got for me now. I've always wanted a jail ministry, he's saying. And now I got one. Now I can preach Christ to Gentiles who are on their way to death. I'm Christ's prisoner. So let's learn with Paul the skills that would, uh, would teach us, that would incline us to, in whatever difficult circumstance we're in, we can point at that circumstance and say, this is from the hand of my Lord. I bow, I bless, I receive, I wait, I look upon him. And I learn how to be content in whatever situation I'm in. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to get out of jail. If, you're in, if you can get out, by all means, do. There were people who were slaves, and Paul says, if you can become free, by all means do. doesn't mean you shouldn't try and better the situation, but when you're trying and you keep hitting a wall and it doesn't matter, that wall is at least for now from God. He's the sovereign in your life. So what are we learning here? What, what are some of the skills that Paul had in mind? What had he learned so that he could be content in any situation? What he learned is the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the will of God, 
submission to God. It just helped Paul in whatever place he is in. It's a great old hymn that captures this. I'm going to put it up for you. It says, Whate'er my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. I will be still, whate'er he doth, and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. First stanza. Third stanza. Again, I started out with all five stanzas and thought, I can't read all that. Third stanza. Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. What a great old hymn. They don't make too many like that anymore. So what are we learning from Paul's carefully chosen words, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Why did he put that in there? He wanted us to read it and say, wait a minute. Oh, I'm learning something here about Paul's worldview, about the sovereignty of God, about God's control even over kings and rulers and nations, and about my submission to that God. You need to learn, you need to have in your heart a very robust, rich, deep, powerful doctrine of God's sovereignty and God's sovereign providence, again, so you can point at anything and say, this from my Savior. God ordained it. It's right, holy. His will abides, and I'll be still whatever he doth and follow where he guideth. Brothers and sisters, it'll help you greatly. So that's the first thing that Paul teaches. That's the first Half of the sermon, hmm, went by and, all right, about half the time. We're good. Before we leave that, by the way, I just imagined a t-shirt somewhere along the sermon prep this time, thinking of Paul's imprisonment where we learn about God's sovereignty and providence. You need a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my jailer. Jesus is my jailer. Whatever jail you're in, wherever you feel stuck, whatever isn't working right for you, Jesus is my jailer. He's a good jailer. He takes care of his people even when they're in jail. Next, however, we're going to move on to Paul's stewardship and the unique massive doses of revelation that God dumped into him and that we have from him in the epistles that he wrote for us. So let's go back to verse 1 again, Ephesians 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, watch Josh Kaptur, watch how slowly I drink. Somebody told me that was you. Wasn't that you? Ah, you've been ratted out. Ah, he told somebody and they told me that Hartland drinks too fast when he takes a drink. I'm, I'm going to take long drinks today, brother. All right. Ephesians 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, I'm a prisoner because of you. I'm a prisoner on behalf of Gentiles. What's he mean by that? Well, he's going to open, up, open that up, and he's going to explain more of that. Let's go to verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. What's he mean? God appointed me, he's saying, as an apostle to you Gentiles. That's what got me in trouble. 
That's why I got in hot water with the Jews who got me in hot water with the Gentiles and Roman people, and that's why I'm in jail. It's because I was ministering to y'all. I was ministering to you Gentiles. It's my stewardship. That's a Greek word, oikonomia, which means household management. What does that mean? The church of Jesus Christ is God's house. He manages it with whom he will. He puts one over this and another over that. And he said to Paul, Paul, here's where I put you in my household. You have a unique stewardship. You are the apostle to the Gentiles. All the others were probably there from Jerusalem. They were too Judaized. They were too Jerusalem-like. They were too like, oh, I'm a Jew of Jews. They were too like that to actually reach Gentiles. They would have had a hard time getting it. That You know what? I can dress like them. I can talk like them. I can eat their food. But Paul, being a Hellenistic Jew and being brilliant and schooled under the feet of Gamaliel, one of the primary teachers in Israel, Paul, being who he was, was just the man. God said, you're the one that will best take my gospel to the Gentiles. You'll be able to contextualize it. You'll be able to fit it in. You'll be okay with their styles of music, not Jerusalem style of music, etc., etc. So Paul had a unique stewardship from God in God's household. It's so important that there are eight passages in the New Testament that describe Paul and his unique stewardship. Again, what am I about to say? I wanted to read all eight of them but I'm not going to. I'm just going to read one. You'll get the idea. Here it is on the slide above me, Galatians 2, 7 and 8. He's describing his stewardship. On the contrary, when they, that is the leaders of the Jerusalem church, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So Paul's beginning to explain to the, the people, here's how come I'm in jail. It's y'all. It's because God gave me a ministry to reach you, and in reaching you, he gave me revelation that we're about to see, that you are now fellow members of the household of God, you're citizens with the saints, you're part of the one new man that is in Christ Jesus, and that's what got me in trouble. When I started teaching you all that you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to keep all the rituals and the ceremonies, and so on, that's what got me in hot water, that's why I'm in jail. And he tells them down in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which suffering is your glory. You should be glorying in me being in jail. So he's telling us about his unique stewardship. God made me an apostle to the Gentiles. But now he adds to that how that there's also this mystery. Let's look at Ephesians 3, 3. Put it up, please. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Wow, this is really important. This is like bedrock stuff. We want to understand this. The mystery, that word musteria, is used 20 times in the New Testament, six times by Paul. Four of those are right here in this passage. Mystery, 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 mystery. That was five, wasn't it? It was four here. Anyway, what is the mystery, Paul? Let's read it again. We saw it in the opening reading, Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul says, 
I have a unique ministry, it's to Gentiles, and God revealed a mystery to me that's gonna be very important and central in my ministry to Gentiles, and that is that you guys are in the same boat that they're in. You, you don't have to pass go, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to collect $200, you don't have to start keeping all the Mosaic law, you just go straight into the church of Jesus Christ where you're fellow citizens, you're saints just like they're saints, you're living stones, you're part of the temple of God. This, Paul says, was revealed to me. It was a mystery prior to me. God never revealed this to Peter. He started this. He never revealed this to Daniel. He never revealed this to Jeremiah. He never revealed this to Ezekiel. He never revealed this to John the Baptist. The Lord Jesus himself knew this, certainly, but never revealed it. The Apostle Paul was the man on God's earth chosen by God to receive direct revelation of a thing that had never been revealed before that was massive. And that is the nature of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, one new man. So look at Ephesians 3.3 again. Put it up again, please. How the mystery was made known to me. How? By revelation. So here's what this goes to. In the previous chapter, Paul's saying, all right, I want to teach you something important here. Uh, There's no longer Jew. There's no longer Gentile. You've both become a new thing, a new anthropos, a new man, one new man in Christ Jesus, thus killing the enmity, slaying the enmity. There's one new man. Somebody says, yo, Paul, where'd you get that? Like, that's not Jeremiah. That's not an Ezekiel. Show me your Old Testament passage. And Paul says, well, let me just explain to you, I'm the one who received that revelation from God. So Paul had a very unique place in the progress of God's revelation to his people on the planet. That word made known to me by revelation, that word revelation, very important word. It's the word apocalypsis. The book of Revelation is literally, not in English, but in Greek, it is the apocalypse which we make the revelation. It's the apocalypse. Apocalyptic genre is like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where God is giving them visions and dreams, and they're seeing things, and they're writing it down, and they're revealing stuff to people directly from God. Paul says, all that? Yeah, me. I'm one of those. I'm in that group. I'm in that camp. I'm not just a guy who was sitting out one day and said, hmm, I have a new idea for Gentiles. I'm going to write this down and you know, try and teach it and get it going in the world. No, no, no. He's saying the way God revealed things to you name the prophet in the Bible you want, Paul says, I'm in that group. I'm in that class. God revealed things like that to me. And he made known this mystery, Jew and Gentile, one new man. He revealed that to me by, by revelation, by apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. So what Paul was claiming is God spoke to him. He claims this in some other passages, actually quite a number. Again, I'll just give you a few. Let's go over to Galatians 1.11. Here it is on the screen. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, not by anybody. But I received it through a revelation. There's that word again, apocalypsis through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You know how Daniel had a revelation and Ezekiel? Paul says, I'm in that group. I had a revelation. I got my gospel from Jesus Christ. There are people today, there are lots of people today who are really, they claim to be Christians, but they're heretics. 
and they're saying things about Paul that are outrageous. They're saying Paul never met Jesus. He got his own, he made up his own thing. He hijacked Christianity. It was doing good till Paul, that's what they're saying, because they don't like what are called the hard passages in Paul. So how do we get rid of him? Well, let's say he messed up Christianity. It was good before him. Paul says, uh-uh, 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 all wrong. I received my gospel, what I'm teaching about Jew and Gentile, I received it through a revelation of Christ Jesus. Let's go down to Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me in time by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal, there's that word again, apocalypsis, to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. This is very important. He said, nobody gave me this. Well, did you make it up? No, that's not it either. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. And I should have added verse 18. I didn't. I'll read it for you. Then after three years, that is three years after my conversion, a little bit of that was spent in Damascus. Probably most of that was spent in Arabia. Then he was back to Damascus for a little bit. And then three years after his conversion, then I went up to Jerusalem and I visited with Peter for 15 days. First time I ever talked to anybody else in authority about the gospel was three years later. What were you doing in those whole three years, Paul? Well, I was out in Arabia. Now, this is highly significant because what's in Arabia? Well, sand an occasional camel, once in a while, a little place where there's a tree or two and you can get some shade and meet some people. And, and Paul apparently spent the better part. We don't know exactly how, how the time breaks up, how much in Damascus, how much in Arabia, how much in, back in Damascus, but that was three years. Probably, that's probably, a, a good bit of it was spent out in the desert. Why did he go out to the desert? Well, one, he's emphasizing to us, nobody gave me my gospel but God. When did you get your gospel? When I was out in the Arabian desert and God was giving me massive, massive, massive revelations and calling me up into the third heaven and calling me up into paradise and revealing things to me, as we'll see in a moment, that I can't even tell you all what they all are. This is what Paul is claiming. Um, what else is significant, significant about the Arabian desert? What's out there? There's a big thing that's out there. What is it? It's Mount Sinai. Moses had been up Mount Sinai and received revelation from God. Elijah had been at Mount Sinai and received revelation from God. Maybe, this is a maybe, maybe Paul is just hinting, there's something later in Galatians that he mentions Mount Sinai and so on. Maybe he was at Mount Sinai, like I'm a second Moses, maybe. Just put that in your, can I say pipe and smoke it? Is that okay? I was looking for a better one, but it wasn't coming. Please, if I get in trouble for pipe and smoke it, don't be nice to me, all right? He says more about this in 2 Corinthians 12. Now, this is going to talk about a time later. This is not the Arabian desert, but look at what was going on 14 years uh, later, roughly. He says, 2 Corinthians 12, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man, and he's talking about himself, it's being humble. We know he's talking about himself because a little later he identifies it as himself. But he starts off this way, to be humble. I know a man 
in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. In the Bible, what is the third heaven? My friends, that is the throne room. Daniel chapter 7, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Paul was caught up into the throne. Read those throne room chapters. They give you goosebumps. And the seraphim and the angels and all the thrones are there around God on the throne. And the lamb is there bleeding. And Paul says, yeah, I was there. These awful people who say, Paul never met Jesus. Uh, Excuse me. He was in the throne room. And it was such an experience, he says, I don't even know whether I was there bodily or just in spirit or what, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Where is that? That's what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, that place. Paul's been there and came back. Paul was in the throne room and came back and told us about it. Paul was in paradise and came back. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And that man, it's Paul, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So if that was happening to him, not during the three years in the desert, that's happening to him later when he's planting churches in Syria and somewhere else. What was going on with Paul during three years in the Arabian desert? I think he was out there almost certainly with an Old Testament. He knew a lot of it by memory anyway. And he was out there going back through it. And Jesus Christ was telling him, here's what that means. Here's what that means. Here's what that really means. Here's what we're doing with the law now. Here's Jew and here's Gentile. Here's a new thing I'm revealing to you. No one else has ever known it. This comes from Jesus Christ to us. It was so great. Paul describes it in this way, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness, Greek is hyperbole, it's hooper, super duper, because of the super-duper amount of revelations God gave me to keep me humble. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He uses that word conceited twice. The temptation, after you had an experience like I've had, of being taken up to the third heavens, up into paradise, and receiving massive, massive, massive infusions of revelation from Jesus Christ himself, and explanations of the Old Testament from Jesus Christ himself, you know, you're, you're going to get conceited. And Jesus says, now I can't allow that either. I got to knock you down a little bit, Paul. So here's this, here's this thorn in the side. Here's this messenger from Satan, whatever that was. So what doctrine are we learning here? You all seem like you're still paying attention. Bless you. What doctrine are we learning? We are learning a little piece of bibliology. Earlier we learned theology proper, God's sovereignty, God's decree, God's providence. Now we're learning bibliology. How do I make sense of my Bible? What about these parts of the Apostle Paul that seem to be the hard passages? And Paul is teaching us, well, here's how you're to view the things I've written. They come from the Lord. They come from Jesus Christ. So much so that here's what he writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 36. It's up there. He kind of gets kind of indignant with people in the church. And he says, or... Was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only one that has reached? If anyone thinks 
that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. The things Paul writes are a command of the Lord. And then a really cheeky last verse. Verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. If anybody stands up at the Corinthian church and says, I don't recognize Paul, Paul says, well, we don't recognize you. You're a nobody. Your views, your opinions, your voices mean nothing. If you don't recognize that the epistles I have written are the word of God. All right, time to summarize this point and make some applications. Paul's stewardship and his revelation. And as always, it is part of my duty as a pastor, as a watchman, as a shepherd of sheep, to realize there are wolves and to apply some of what has been taught here to some of the errors of our day. So let me say to you, beware of false teachers, beware of heretics, beware of wolves who say that, and now I lifted some phrases directly out of some other people, easy to find them. They say, Paul hijacked Christianity. They say, I like Christianity before Paul, but not after Paul. They say, here's a quote, Christianity as we know it is not a direct reflection of the person and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. No, it is a distortion and a creation of the apostle Paul. Here's another one, quote, I like early Christianity. I like the early disciples, pristine and pure, but Paul came along and corrupted it. This is rife in our land nowadays. Beware of it. It's error and it's evil. It will lead you away from the word of God. Those who say those things, we don't recognize. Who are you? You say that? I'm sorry. Who are you? You're you're no one in the church of Jesus Christ. You don't get a voice in here. You don't get to weigh in. Paul received more revelation directly from Jesus Christ up in the throne room than most people in the Bible. The super surpassing. Surpassing whom? All the other prophets. Most of them anyway. Surpassing whom? More than Jeremiah, more than Isaiah, more than Daniel, more than Ezekiel. Surpassing what God revealed to all them. I received more, and I had a more intense experience in the throne room in paradise in the presence of God. And Paul, in his epistles, gives us exactly what Jesus Christ revealed to him. So, last slide of the day. I want to say this. Biblical Christianity is apostolic. If it is not apostolic, it is not biblical Christianity because Jesus handpicked the apostles, gave them his truth, and told them, now you give that truth unvarnished, unchanged to my people. That's what they have done. You have it in the 27 books of your New Testament. It is the word of God. Christianity, real Christianity, is apostolic. It is Pauline. It is Petrine. It is Johannine. That's John. It is apostolic because it's in Jesus Christ. So what do we try to do today? Try to shore you up with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, God's providence, and God's inspiration of the New Testament letters and books given by direct revelation from Jesus Christ to those who wrote the books for us. Hold on to your Bible Submit to God's sovereign moving and purposes in your life. And as it says in the Old Testament, kiss the son. That means bow, bless him, your will, Lord Jesus, lest he be angry with you in the way. We all have all that down now? 
We're all in a place now where we can be absolutely docile and submissive before God and his sovereign purposes in our lives. Now we're not all there. And if you're there now, you won't be there tomorrow, right? We're all in and out of that all the time. We're all struggling with that all the time. Me too. So let's pray it in there best as we can right now, all right? Let's pray it in there. Would you bow and pray with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time in your holy word. We do pray that you would teach us very deeply of your sovereignty in our lives, of your good providence, your hand working all things in our lives according to the counsel of your will. Teach us to submit to you and bless you and wait upon you and call upon you. And for anybody here this morning who's struggling with that, and I'm sure there must be, help them, Lord. Give them grace. Give them more light. They're probably praying to you, Lord, subdue my heart. So we'll pray with them. Lord, would you subdue their heart? Help them to bow before you, their sovereign king. Father, thank you for the Bibles you've given to us. All the books of the Old and New Testament, we receive them as your holy word. We receive them by faith and pray that you will make us a people of the book and thus a people who know the things of God and do the will of God. Help us in this, Lord Jesus, as a church, a people for your possession, a people for your praise. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.